If culture is something that develops after the need to survive is met, identity is something that exists when your homeland is stripped away and you are left to decide what really matters. Dr. Tom Sunak, former Croatian diplomat and scholar on all issues European and his adopted country America, discusses with us what it means to be European, parallels with today's Americanized West and the Soviet system, and a way to forge a new path forward that harnesses the history of Europe with a newfound sense of identity as European nations across the globe face never-before-seen challenges posed by immigration and erasure of traditional culture with global consumerism. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Nick and I'm joined by my co-host Adam. Hey everyone. As well as a very Hello Adam. As well as a very special guest, Dr. Tom Sunik. How are you? Dr. Sinek. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I cannot complain except for the lousy weather here in Croatia. You just wouldn't believe, but it's the first time that I see that in the last 20, 30 years. It's really chilly outside. It's about 40 degrees, 40 Fahrenheit. It's about 10, 10 Celsius. So I'm surprised that with such a cold, cold and chilly weather, I guess it's just some belated winter storm, you know, coming over from Siberia. <laughs> Hopefully it won't last long because I'm yearning and craving for sunny California, if I can put it that way. <laughs> well, Dr. Sinek, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, you were you were both a former academic uh, as well as diplomat, uh, as well as a very prolific writer. So why don't you give a little bit of background so people understand who are not familiar with your work, where you're coming from. Well, it's hard to, I don't know where to start. In fact, uh, I was born in a very Catholic family, very anti-communist family. My family, my dad, my mom, my sister also, they had big, big, big troubles back in communist Yugoslavia. So did I in a grammar school. I immigrated to the States in 1983 and obtained political asylum because my dad was in jail for quote-unquote politically incorrect behavior. He was a former attorney. He was adopted by several, I'll tell you exactly, 12 or 13 American congressmen, including Senator Tom Lantosh. So I don't know where to start then. In fact, I did my PhD in political science, political theory at the UC California, specifically in Santa Barbara. I was teaching there for a year, and then I went down south to Cal State Fullerton, Cal State Long Beach, where I taught political theory and comparative politics. And this was just about the time, this was 1991, uh, when Yugoslavia, when multicultural, I need to recap that multicultural Yugoslavia was falling apart. The war, the terrible war started here. And then in 93, I returned back with my family to Croatia. And I was pretty much active in the Croatian diplomatic corps. 
I was uh, stationed first in uh, Copenhagen, then in London for some time, and then, of course, in Brussels for four years. So, in fact, all that time, all along, I've been writing and publishing and I've been translating. And to be perfectly honest with you, I feel much more comfortable with students than with politicians. Well, that, that actually, uh, hearing your, your background and hearing the, the tumult that you had to live through and interacting with actual politicians, it, this is a rare opportunity for me to ask a real question to somebody who actually would know uh, whether this is true or not. But did you get the sense that the people that you were talking to in the diplomatic arena were actual power players? Did they have any real influence or were these basically puppets that we on sort of the dissident right believe that they are and then the, the real people who have power, George Soros and people who have money are actually controlling things, and especially in Yugoslavia and that part of the world, there was a lot of um, people coming in from the United States to privateer, to take business away from a lot of the people. They did this in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Did you get the sense that the governments were in charge, or did you get the sense that other people were in charge? It's a good question. I got to tell you, it really depends on the size of a government or the government. Like, keep in mind, Croatia is a rather tiny country. It's basically a speck on the map, like Lithuania, like Estonia, like Slovakia. And, of course, judging from the American perspective, America is, the United States of America is a huge landmass. It's a unique uh, phenomenon in the world. Like, there is only one language spoken from Alaska all the way down to to, to Yucatan, well, I, we can say to Louisiana. Uh, this is something really unique and unprecedented in the history of mankind. Here in Europe, just keep in mind, this is a very, uh, 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 it's an area with lots of countries, with 35, 30, 30, 30, 30 nation states and uh, probably twice as many uh, peoples or, or, or nationhoods cohabitating together in this huge, uh, in this uh, relatively small area. And of course, you asked me the question about uh, uh, to what extent uh, the countries are the real uh, players in this in this political game, or to what extent are they being delegated, if I can put it that way, by quote unquote foreign or external factors. Definitely, now Croatia has to abide by certain rules and unwritten rules by big players. So of course, Croatia, uh, back in Yugoslavia, I had to listen to to to. Um, uh, decrees and uh, ordinances coming from Belgrade, which was the capital of Yugoslavia, multicultural Yugoslavia. Nowadays, given the fact that uh, Croatia is uh, the member state of the European Union, definitely it has to abide by the decrees of the European Union and those big power players. And of course, I have as a former diplomat, I have some big, um, big worries about that because it's the matter... Uh, it's just—it's not just a matter of a political decision making, but it's also a matter of, of uh, how can I put it bluntly, servility. But we can discuss about the servility in small nation states a little bit more. Definitely, you mentioned the name Soros. It's not just Soros himself. There are other, other factors, other political actors in this huge play going on. Now, again, as I said, you really, you really have to keep in mind the level of decision making. A country has based on its strength, based on its military might, and based it on its sovereignty. France definitely, as a big country of 70 million people, has much more leverage in the political arena than, let's say, a small and tiny Croatia, which is still fighting for its 
for its own quest for identity. That's the problem with Croatia, with Slovakia, and Lithuania. I guess I guess this is something we gotta we gotta focus on a little bit more. As far as the UK is concerned, I'm sure you realize that uh, you know what's going on. It's it's a it's a nightmare. It's a legal nightmare now going on in the UK. There is this option of free exit from or free Brexit or hardcore Brexit or or, or soft Brexit, and even the the United Kingdom has. Uh, it even even Margaret, even Mrs. May, the, the, the Prime Minister May, has a, a certain amount of, uh, uh, how can I put it, I don't want to complicate things, even her hands are tied in many, many aspects. She, she also has to listen to big players. Now, uh, let me just clarify one thing. I'm usually against this um, very uh, simplistic uh, 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 formula of conspiracy theory. Of course, we can discuss now about conspiracy theories and so on, who runs the world, whether this is the Jews or the Martians or whoever. There is no question that they play, the Jews play a certain amount of, a, amount of a, they have a certain amount of strength. But I guess it would be very, very simplistic to say that they are the only factor in this uh, uh, power play in, in, the, in, in Europe and elsewhere for that matter in Europe. And if you want to ask me more specifically, I'd be glad to, have, to answer that. If you do have Adam, any, would you like anyone, to follow up on that? Yeah, if you have uh, more, because I, I, I tell people that I don't believe the governments are in charge anymore. And I basically say that I think it's the multinational uh, financiers and people who have money that are running the world at this point, at least the Western world. You know, China is a little bit different, obviously, but I sometimes struggle to give people names. And I usually, you know, defer to, well, just look at the people who go to Davos and you could say Bill Gates or somebody like that. But there's many more. And in particular in Europe, I, I don't know who these people are other than George Soros and he's going to die soon. And so he's obviously used as sort of a boogeyman and sort of a scapegoat, if you even want to say that. Although I think he's very guilty of a lot of things. But I do agree that there are many, many, many players. And I think, and this is based on one of the talks that you've given in the past that I, I completely agree with. I think really the, the power that the West is, is dealing with is sort of the, the capitalist powers. Not that I'm a communist, uh, but it's, it's to recognize that in a quote-unquote democracy, when you have people with billions of dollars, they're going to have a bigger voice than the rest of the people. And so it's my contention that there are powerful money powers in the world that are running the the policies of most countries in the West. And if you uh, have any more specifics on the European perspective in particular, or even America, I would love to hear it. Well, it's, it's a good point, and I'll try to be as brief as possible. Take, for instance, the Fed. Now, take, for instance, the European Central Bank located in Frankfurt. Now, I'm sure your listeners and I, you guys, you probably realize that this bank has more, this bank of the European Central Bank has more sovereignty than the German government itself. Even its, its outlet here in Zagreb, the central bank in Zagreb, it has more sovereignty than our prime minister, has more uh, margin of maneuvering than our president, the lady, Mrs. Kolinda Grabar-Kitarovic, who I know, who I used to know rather well sometimes, 10, 15 years back. So basically, this answers your question. 
the banking system, be it the Fed in the United States of America, or be it the central bank in in uh, Frankfurt, which belongs, well, belongs, which actually controls the European Union, which controls the fiscal and monetary policy, has an em- enormous amount of power. You mentioned Soros. Let me just reverse this argument. Yes, Soros is bad. He was a bad guy, you can say, and many, many other folks who are within his, if we can even say tribe, or within his, within his, uh, within his group, or within his uh, coterie. But uh, I have much more problem on the personal level with people who are Sorosized, in a sense. I don't know if this is a good verbal construct. Uh, you know what I mean by Sorosized? Yeah, who I actually, like it. Uh, who actually uh, cater to his uh, impulses and his instincts. Who actually, who actually want to prove that they are more Soros than Soros himself. Or to put it bluntly, there are quite a few of uh, people, specifically neocons in the United States of America and even Christian Zionists who sometimes pretend to be more Jewish than the Jews themselves. I'm using those those figures, those figures of speech so that your listeners can understand better what my, my concern is and not just my but of many, many people that I know of. I guess that's something that makes me quite worried. It is what uh, Francis Parker Yaki would refer to as the Michelle Stratum. But... Yes, exactly. That's a good he was a great author, by the way, you know, this uh, Yaki. Yes, I read him thoroughly and I wrote a couple of reviews and I'm glad that you mentioned him. Unfortunately, he hasn't been publicized enough and I hope he will get uh, more publicity in the years to come and probably in the, in the decades to come. He certainly deserves a praise and laudatory statements. Well, in that vein, what I wanted to talk with you a bit about is Americanism generally, because you come from the unique perspective of being a dissident of communism, but a dissident of Americanism as well. And Americans frequently would, well, especially during the Cold War, they fell easily into the dialectical trap that there is the either or of communism or Americanism. Uh, there is no third possibility. Uh, so I guess to start with, I understand that you are, in fact, an American citizen. Uh, do you yes, consider indeed. yourself an American well, you really caught me here, and I've been thinking about this issue, about this phenomenon, both psychological, I could say anthropological phenomenon. Let me, if I if I may, I would like to quote uh, Wolfgang Goethe. I'm sure you heard about this great author. He oh, wrote his book Faust. I'm sure you're familiar with Faust. This is a classic, and I, I, I must rehash and rehash over and over again. There is a, a, a there is a, a uh, a statement by the young Faust, I, please, I don't want to misquote, but it, it goes approximately like there are two souls, there are two parts in myself. One telling me this, the other telling me that. And I guess this is this is what, what I've been going through through all my uh, through all my life, so to speak, because I constantly keep questioning myself and and I constantly ask myself, is this the right way or is this is the wrong way? Now, of course, I was born anti-communist. I mean, probably in my genes, I was raised in a very anti-communist environment. On top of it, I started reading anti-communist literature, even forbidden literature back in communist Yugoslavia, thanks to my dad. He was a very eloquent, very educated man anyway. We live very modestly, by the way, very, very extremely modestly, almost spartanly. But I read, I kept reading and reading and reading. And of course, you know, when, when I came to the United States of America, when I got to know a little bit the West, I realized that in essence, in, 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 its, uh, in its core, 
there isn't much difference, except if we can say that that the repression in the West, the repression, the soft repression, let's say in the United States of America, which I experienced as a former professor in the United States, and then of course as a first as a graduate student, it's it's really troublesome. It's very very worrisome because it's it's not visible, yeah. it's not open, it's not uh, how it's not palpable. How what what else can I say? It's not salient. And hence, the people are much more uh, subservient to it. They fall into this trap much more easier than back in communist Yugoslavia, right. if I can backpedal. When I was a kid, you know, I was a city boy. So, you know, when we were kids, you know, we went to the catechism, not not to pray God, but just to crack jokes. It was, you know, the Catholic Church back in communist Yugoslavia was just about the only place where you could, you could more or less, where you could feel a little bit safe. And, of course, we went there and, uh, you know, we were sort of, we... We're sort of um, trying to compete and outbeat each other by deciphering the communist faces, the communist lingo, the communist uh, phenotypes, if you wish. And we're good at it because we could recognize the foe. The foe, the communist foe, could be very well recognized. Even Solzhenitsyn talks about this. Here's now the centennial. It's going to be at the Sorbonne next week. I'm going to probably attend it on Solzhenitsyn. So we knew it was, it was, very, it was salient. It really struck your eyes. Now, back in the States, particularly in academia where I was, you couldn't tell who your real foe was. And this was one thing which made me extremely worried about the United States of America and still does, despite all my due respect that I have for Trump. Even his policy is a little bit, we can say, uh, Mephistophelesque in a, in a Goethean sense, in a sense that he's also a split personality. On the one hand, he has to cater to some uh, foreign interests overseas, especially in the Middle East. On the other hand, he he's definitely is a good man because he's, he, he's the first American president who actually debunked this myth of the free press. He, he calls the press, the so-called free press, he called it with its real name. Namely, it's a fake news. So I guess we can start from that. Back to your question. I cannot tell you exactly. Uh, I feel now, right now, at this stage, at this moment, I feel like I'm yearning, I'm craving for my friends in the United States of America. On the other hand, when I'm when I'm there, I, I miss certain par parts here. And I guess, okay, let, let me be perfectly frank with you. I frankly, at this stage, given this, again, okay, it's another topic we want to cover, given this ethnic replacement, given this migration of peoples, given this replacement of uh, gigantic, I mean, it's unprecedented in history, it's going on. I don't feel very, I, I don't feel very much at home, neither in Paris or for that matter, London, let alone in Atlanta, or let's say in, in LA where I left, you know, so I wonder where I am and who I am. And this is the question I keep asking myself almost I shouldn't say 24 hours, but even sometimes I wake up at night and I ask myself who I am, where do I belong, where are my friends? I, I share that as well. I mean, I was watching something last night and it was set in a place in Europe and it had, almost like in American media, it had the multicultural representation on display. And this was traditionally a very homogenous country. And I remember actually studying foreign languages not realizing it at the time, maybe 10 plus years ago when I was still a student uh, and wanting basically to, to find a place that actually had tradition and culture and, and something that wasn't American. Being an American, I, 
I kind of realized there was something wrong, but without traveling, I didn't know it until I left. And watching some of these uh, foreign films and things like that, I would get a sense that there was there was still hope for the European people. But seeing some of the more modern stuff, where they're they're including, I mean, this this country in particular, it had uh, it had Somalis, you know, living in. Uh, in the homes of the the people that you know, the the country they're in, and they're they're serving in the government, it's very jarring to see this. And to get back to your feeling of you don't feel at home anywhere, I mean, you you really if you're as an American growing up here, I always thought of Europe as sort of European. But today, I don't feel that way. It's becoming American, and this gets to your the title of a, a very eloquently uh, written title, if I may add your book, uh, Homo Americanus. I think this is the strategy after the Second World War. It's basically to turn Europe into America and, if possible, the world. Uh, and without communism, and not that, again, I'm not a communist, but without that that opposition, I think the, the 2000s, the 1990s, the 2000s have been the spread of the American consumer culture around the world. And we've seen it in the architecture. We've seen it in, in the media. We've seen it in the cities. Uh, so it really is um, incredible. And I don't know where we go from here, but I, I share that feeling. Yes. Uh, again, if you allow me, I you know before I start studying a certain social or political phenomenon, I always want to make sure that I clarify the concepts well. This is probably essential in in my research, at least. And I will certainly advise it to, to all of my students and to everybody. I'm saying this. I'm telling this for the very simple reason. People toss around big, big words like totalitarianism, democracy, and whatever, revisionism and uh, self-denial or, or all those big words. And I always want to know exactly who uses those words and in which particular historical context. And this is something very, very important. I'm not ruling out that had I been born, given my Promethean nature, and I'm always nervous by my temperament, always I have this hey, tremendous sense of curiosity. I want to know what's going on in the world. World. And I always put myself also in the shoes and in the boots of my enemies and my foes and trying to figure out their mindset. So I guess I'm saying this because had I been born probably 60, 70 years ago or earlier, I'm sorry, uh, if had I been born, let's say, during uh, in early, early 19th century, most likely I would have joined the Confederates because I love them, you know, for some reason. But probably I would have been very much disappointed, just like right now. Even I'll tell you why. I mean, you guys, you must ask me that. I'm heavily disappointed. I'm pathologically disappointed with the status of Croatia right now. It has become a false, broken English, if you say, mimicry type of a country which is which is a serve in a servile fashion, uh, imitating every 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 little gesture of those uh, uh, of those uh, Brussels bureaucrats. So just like once upon a time, Croatian politicians mimicked every nook and cranny of the Soviet Union, communism and Belgrade communism, whatever, now they're doing exactly the same thing, of course, by using different words, different di different uh, locutions in, in imitating the, 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 the Brussels and, and sort of expiating and atoning for their former fascist sins and what have you. So basically, I'm extremely concerned with this uh, choice of, of the language. I'm sure you're aware of that if you read the New York Times or if LA Times or whatever, you notice this word, uh, let alone the forward magazine or whatever, you constantly hear those words like fascism, white supremacism, white supremacism. But what those words mean? They have 10 different meanings. If you asked 10 different people in the audience, guys, can you define me what white supremacism means? What extreme right wing means? What, what does neocon means? 
they will not be able to tell you, or rather they will, but you will have 10 different definitions. So I'm very keen about those semantic distortions, and I'm extremely keen to find out when I read a book, let's say, let's say on the Holocaust, or when I read the book, let's say on Holodomor, or when I read the book on, let's say, on the communist crimes, I want to know exactly, or for that matter, when I read on the, on the Nazi crime, I want to know exactly who is the author of the book, what type of a lingo he uses, and who pays him? <laughs> That's the final point. Yeah. Who actually, who bribes him? Who actually greases his research? You know, there is always somebody behind. Yeah. On the subject of semantic distortions, let's talk a little bit about uh, Americanism. Uh, would you say that uh, Americanism you could define as America's political theology? Yes, in a sense, political theology. Is, but let's let me just single out a couple of couple of uh, uh, a couple of details that I'm talking about in my book Homo Americanus. First, there is this sort of you know the city on the hill type of a mentality, which is also incorporated in this political theology of Americanism. Like we are the only one, we are the best, we are the chosen ones, and you know where this comes from. This all actually comes from the Old Testament. So the Americans, we can say the even early Americans, even with Abraham Lincoln, you can say I don't I don't think that Je Jefferson fits into this category. But especially with the 20th century, you have this uh, chosen type of a phenomenon in the American political class. And I guess this is uh, quite disturbing it, it, from my perspective, and I'm pretty much sure from the perspective of many, many American authors. I mean, I, I mentioned quite a few of them, even Mencken, who also influenced me very much. So this is this chosenites. Now, in a, in a modern, in a modern, in a modern secular uh uh, language uh, in or also in the modern in a modern political arena we can see that this political theology particularly as far as the American relationship with with Israel is concerned there are no geopolitical uh, uh, assets as far as the United States is concerned I mean what, what is the, what is the what is in terms of security what does Israel mean for the United States it means donations Nothing. to congressmen but That's it, what it actually pro this 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 oh how can I say this uh, supra how oh, what's the best word this this uh, this doubling down on 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 this uh, amicability towards Israel basically stems in a secular fashion keep that in mind, secular fashion from the Old Testament and we notice that particularly in a very disappointing fashion as far as uh, Donald Trump is concerned who is otherwise a good man there's no question very intelligent but he plays this game of this political theology by by actually catering to a country which is, has absolutely no geopolitical uh, interest for the for the security of the United States of America, I mean, when we don't want to talk about billions of dollars poured into Israel and so on and so forth. Now, of course, you have this uh, issue of this political theology of Americanism is also visible in other parts of Europe, especially after the Second World War. And of course, you are quite right to ask me a question: Who is behind? I'm not, again, I'm not necessarily referring to Jews, and this is with lots of my friends, even some of them you know very well, some of them you had you know, on your show, uh, make a mistake. It's not just the Jews per se or the Frankfurt School. You've got to always look at the people who follow in a stereoid fashion. If you see the Gentiles or the Goyim, whichever way pejoratively you want to depict them, they actually follow those precepts. I noticed that in this phenomenon of Marxism. Now imagine how Marxism was popular back in the 60s, I remember 70s, in the in 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 in, uh, in American and in, in European colleges. It was massively, I mean, you couldn't meet a single intellectual, not just in Eastern Europe, but in Western Europe, a so-called free Western Europe, back in 60s and 70s, who were basically 
uh, endorsing Marxism and who in, inadvertently even endorsed the, the killing fields all over all over Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And now this, this political theology has disappeared, this Marxist political theology has disappeared. It has been replaced by another one, which is, of course, liberalism. Now, I guess I'm probably not swerving way too much from the topic, so you may want to focus and then tell me where, where I got to focus a little bit more. Well, one uh, one thing that I your book really made me think about was the question of the uh, the interplay between Americanism and so-called anti-Americanism. For example, uh, you have many on the American left who will decry America as you know a racist country, et cetera, et cetera. However, the where they're coming from with their attacks are actually implicitly Americanist. Namely, that America is not American enough in their, from their perspective. That's a very good point. Again, as I said at the beginning, we got to be very careful with the, with the choice of words and with the choice of our concepts. Look, take, for instance, Jefferson. I guess Noam Chomsky, who is a leftist, or some other leftist guys, I just can't think from the top of my head, uh, also appropriated or confiscated Jefferson for their leftist cause. On the other hand, if you read, uh, what is his name? Uh, he spent some time in, in asylum in Lunaria, this American author, Ezra Pound. Ezra well, Pound. Yes, he also wrote a laudatory book, booklet about, about the Jefferson. So basically, what is my point? I don't need, I don't worry, I don't care so much about the book, or any book for that matter, even if you talk about the grammar or fairy tales, whatever. I'd like to know who is, who is the interpreter, let me recap, the interpreter of this particular or this specific word, be it of Jefferson, or be it of Lincoln, or whoever. And I guess we have a big problem with that, especially in academia. And that's hence the reason I, I just, I cannot give you a specific answer, I mean, where I'm coming from, I guess... Uh, but again, as far as the well, left is concerned, the left is, they, they, they argue, I guess I would probably call myself a true American, the way I see it, America. <laughs> and I have no problem with this word, which completely demonized, you know, race now, even the word race itself. Now, now just look at the semantic, I'm sorry for this digression. Look at the words race, 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 race in French, it was a normal, neutral word, until I'll tell you, mid seventies, uh, mid seventies, and then gradually it started, you know, sinking down into the memory hole. It started, it became more and more distorted to the extent that even when you say erase nowadays, people sort of uh, get a little bit, you know, shocked. Well, what do you mean? There are no races. So again, we just have to look. We have to evaluate uh, before we make any political judgment. We have to evaluate the context the political and historical context when a specific concept is used. I hope I'm not complicating things too much, but this is a very tough job, you know, indeed. Very tough homework for all of us. No, th this is precisely what I wanted to discuss. Uh, what I, you talk about, for example, I mean, it's, it's a struggle over who's America, who's Americanism. Because uh, I could lay equal claim to being, I mean, my, my family's been here since the beginning. I could lay equal claim to being an American patriot as, you know, some uh, uh, some Somali Congress. You know, the, the, it's power is what's able to decide this, 
And mm-hmm. uh, you've pointed out as well that American uh, racialists were, in fact, unwilling to part with a lot of their own Americanism. Namely, they were up on things like uh, capitalism, economic progress, and romantic myths about American history. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally think that this has something to do with the uh, Amer- certain type of American conformism that uh, you know, Tocqueville talked about and you mentioned mm-hmm. as well in your book, which is that I, I think people fear the alienation that would come from adhering to maybe you would say more European type political thinking, like, for example, uh, the two men we mentioned, Francis Parker Yaki and Ezra mm-hmm. Pound, who uh, were both mm-hmm. subject to exactly that. And I wonder, too, because I think one of the more salient points you make when trying to untangle the what is America, what is Americanism, is that you identify the defining quality as a rejection of roots. And mm-hmm. I wonder what could be more American than a rejection of America itself? You know, for example, our ancestors, they burned the Union Jack. Well, so w- would it not be sort of the... Uh, culmination of american patriotism to to part as well with the stars and stripes very good point and i tell you quite frankly i i don't have a good answer to it probably i should be on the on the defensive side of the fence let me tell you one thing there is no question that uh, the early americans let's let's start with uh, let's say 17th 18th 19th century who came to the states they cut off their roots the european roots whether this is, was for good or bad i cannot really tell you that now from this point of view i got to single out one thing which i truly admire with uh, in in uh, among americans even among you folks unlike probably with me where i'm probably i'm at fault what I admire right now in the United States, especially with my friends, with white nationalists, whichever way you want to call them, is they are not tribally oriented like most European nationalists. So I understand. I'm trying to sort of visualize what was crossing the mind of those people who were crossing the ocean in the 19th and the 18th and the 19th century. They were sick and tired of this false. Uh, false aristocracy, all those false titles that uh, Europe, and it may, makes me sick even on a daily basis here sometimes, all those real, little tribal issues. At this stage, when you look at those tribal issues, you know, probably six, uh, probably 30 years, of, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, probably 10 years ago, I would have given you a different answer. But at this stage, all those differences in Europe, be it the Walloons or Flemings or the Scots or Irish or Croats, Serbs, I'll tell you, this is a massive burden on us. It, 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 it actually, we have no luxury anymore to, to uh, levitate, to gravitate uh, 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 alongside our roots, our ancient roots, because we have no time for it. We are being swapped, literally. I repeat that we are being submerged completely. So my answer at this year, Anno Domini 2019, yes, indeed, I see still a, a glimmer of hope in the United States, particularly with, I hate this word, white nationalists, between European, white European nationalists, if you wish, whatever, nationalists of European extractions, because those little tribal, those, uh, how can I say, those, uh, uh, those clannish, issues which are so profound, they're still profound in Europe, particularly Serbs and Croats, you know, and what's going on here in the neighborhood. It's just a massive burden which serves, doesn't serve European interest or for that matter, white interest at all. And again, I see a glimmer of hope among white nationalists, among nationalists in, in, in the United States of America, who actually consider those things quite obsolete. So again, I don't know if you can follow this paradox that I'm trying to point out, 
on the one hand, just as much as the early Americans cut off their roots with, with Europe, at the same time they retained, probably not explicitly, but implicitly, they retained this uh, Europeanhood. How can I say they, they retained their, well, let me put it bluntly, implicitly their racial, racial consciousness, which is certainly much more pronounced than in Europe. Yeah, if I can add, is this I, 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 real quick, Nick? Um, uh, real, real quick, oh, oh, whichever <laughs> you go ahead, Adam. All right, thank you. Um, in my own lifetime, I can tell you the racial consciousness did not exist until probably the past ten or fifteen years. I mean, I was always aware, obviously, of people look different, but in America, the the Democratic Party, in particular, the strategy of identity politics has ramped up ever since Obama got into office. There was an article in the New York Times in 2012 that actually explicitly admitted this, that the Democrats were abandoning the white working class. And it really has polarized the country. And I can see this, you know, two ways. One is it's, it's going to divide up the country and that's going to break the... Uh, the, the, the quote-unquote nation, but you know what we all realize is an empire. Uh, but in a in a different way, in a more positive way, it's it's forging a new identity in heritage Americans. This is the euphemism we're using to basically call you know white people in America, the people that we remember growing up that are suddenly being marginalized by the the oligarchs and the people with money who want to basically turn the entire planet into one giant Walmart. Uh, but it's it's creating a new identity, and this is, I think, what you're getting at, in that there is sort of a European identity, broadly speaking, that is transnational in America that is not the case in Europe because of the, the history of all the different nations and ethnicities. And it's it's a very interesting development, and I don't know how the, the two the two places, the European and the American, maybe the, the former British colonies of Canada and Australia, if you want to include them as well, how they all coordinate. I don't know if that happens, but it's, it's something that's happening in America. And I'm wondering if this is the way forward or if we, if we try something else. I mean, I have so many questions for you, uh, Dr. Sunik, about how this compares to the Soviet system. And it, it's, it's different because as you point out, it's very subtle. There's, there's, there are a couple of uh, Russian authors that I like a lot. One is the Saker, and the other one is Dmitry Orlov, and they collaborate quite a bit. And I, I think it was uh, the Saker that was pointing out how the propaganda in the United States is, is much stronger than it ever was in the Soviet Union. He used to actually work for the... Uh, I think it was the State Department or the, the Defense Department, I can't remember, in the United States. And it was actually during the, the Yugoslavian wars when the United States started bombing Serbia that he, he left. Yeah. He got so angry at it. But his job was basically, prior to that, it, it was to analyze Pravda. And he says that the propaganda that you know CNN and MSNBC puts out is even stronger than it was back then. But it's more sophisticated. It's, it, coupled with the Hollywood machine, it, it is so clever uh, compared to the Russian, you know, 1984, we are in charge. You are the subservient people. In America, you're you're taught that you're you're free, but it's it's not really true. You yes. realize that as you get older. So I don't know how we how we figure this out, but I, I think there is a, a a slowly growing identity in America that is is sort of different than what uh, we were taught in school. But I don't know if we have enough time, and it's it's. It's just a strategy question, like, do we build on the American model or do we build on the European model where there's more history? Do we create something new or do we go back to our roots? I guess is that, that's kind of my question for you. Mm -hmm. 
I'll try to answer first. Let me just clarify the point that you raised at the very beginning. Like uh, you mentioned that, like, let's say 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, most white Americans didn't even pay any attention to their racial consciousness. This was just taken for granted. Of course, this is called, I call implicit, implicit uh, racial awareness. Why was that? Because America was a homogenous country. Like 60, 70 years ago, what, there was 90% of white Americans living in the United States of America. Now, the minute when you have this demographic structure, racial structure uh, changed and overhauled, then people just react instinctively. It's just, it's called territorial imperative. Uh, I, I could just cite quite a few books by Richard Lane, by Garrett Hardin, and I, I used to know he was my mentor at the UC Santa Barbara, Garrett Hardin, a great sociobiologist. Now, everybody needs his, his territorial imperative. When you notice that somebody is in your, in your house or near your house, like in Detroit or, let's say, in southern LA or wherever you guys live, in Seattle or something, of course, you, you instinctively react against that. So I guess this is something we have to clarify first. As far as your second point is concerned, yes, I guess I mentioned that obliquely. I, I noted, I, I mentioned that uh, uh, the privilege and the quotation marks of living in communism was that every person on the street, even a Joe Six Pack, if you, even a person without a PhD, even a person, an illiterate person, could tell right away that. Communism was a big lie. It was such an open and abrasive lie. It was such a it's just a grotesque lie. It was such a barbaric lie that everybody realized that the communists were just simple bastards, if I can put it that way, uh, violent bastards, criminals, whatever you know. Now, of course, in a in a in a society in a hyper real society like the United States of America. Of course, when the fun society, we call it, where you have this ideology of fun, of fun making and whatever, especially spear-guided by the by by the Hollywood with this Hollywood industry. And yes, we can say we can actually draw the uh, the, the parallel, rather the analogy with with a gulag. You know, I don't see much difference between the Hollywood industry and gulag, except in the gulag, people realize that they were suffering. <laughs> the Hollywood is doing its propaganda in a more subtle and more insidious fashion. And lots of young people, very intelligent people with high IQ, fall into this trap. I guess, I, I don't know if I'm answering, I guess I probably I have the impression sometimes that I'm talking too much. I'm not answering the question correctly. Well, uh, the yes, European yeah. uh, ethnic nationalism, there, there's uh, identity uh, gender. Generation Identitaire in France, for example, they're, yes. they're trying to get back to the, the French identity. Uh, but the question is, in America and maybe for Europe also, do we create a white identity or do we go back to ethnic identities is maybe the simplest way uh, to put it. Let me just correct you a little bit. One good thing, okay, it's an irony of history, you're full of it, you know. You know, every 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 cloud has its silver, silver, what do you call it, line, line, lining, right? Silver lining, right? Look, uh, uh, the situation in the, in the European Union, in Europe, has changed profoundly for the better in terms of our identity, in terms of our uh, racial identity, I can put it that way. Thanks, ironically, to this massive onslaught of non-Europeans. So yes, you're quite right. The French identitarians, I know them well. I've been in touch with them. I had a couple of speeches for them. It's no longer the same like frogs, meow, only, only French or French. No, no, no. It's way, it's gone, it's obsolete, and I'm happy to tell you that. It's a good thing. Sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. People are coalescing, they're regrouping. In Europe, we now have a very strong, uh, strong uh, nationalist uh, 
movements and parties. In fact, you will see next month, uh, guys, please do follow that. In, in May, uh, late, uh, late, in two weeks, there will be parliamentary elections for the European Parliament. And this is going to be a massive, I can tell you, massive restructuring. You will have a strong rise in uh, in different uh, uh, in, in, in uh, different representations of, of of different of different nationalist groups and what they all have in common of course you know what the, it's a standard uh, meme uh, almost all the people are afraid people are afraid of not just the uh, the ethnic replacement or racial replacement they're also afraid of being of, of having their culture their religion, their tradition. Let's leave aside now the theology of Christianity and so on. Christianity is not just to pray in God. Christianity is also civilization. So they're being afraid of being completely, how can I say, swallowed and, and they will disappear. So again, the French identitarians, the German identitarians, I know them. In fact, next week I'll see them. In fact, on Saturday I will be in Austria, so I'll probably catch up with some Austrian identitarians who are pretty strong. They have... Uh, that we all put now not our tribal, our local, our clannish interests first, but first and foremost our cultural and our racial survival. I'm using the word probably ethnic because it sounds uh, less abrasive than the word race. I told you why uh, a while ago because we got to use, unfortunately, this uh, very gener gen generic expression ethnic because it doesn't sound for the time being as abrasive as the word race. But there is no question, let me recap, that European identitarians, the European nationalists, are coalescing more and more and are working on it, along with my friends in the United States of America. I guess the time now, the, the, this, our, our century, is no longer to quarrel between the English, French, I'll re recap it once again and once again. We just got to coalesce and preserve our culture and preserve our identity, <coughs> not to make a federal case of it. And... Uh, certainly fight for our biological survival i don't know if i was explicit and clear enough and i guess it's it's coming now There's i, I no think questions. i think you want a european identity i think that's what you're getting at that's what i'm hearing we certainly don't want to go to war you know <laughs> white europeans against of america that, that would be stupid that would be of and I, I mean i'm sorry i'm sorry what happened between serbs and Croats. but then again you have those historical issues this have different victimologies you know where those victimologies came where they came from and who was the organizer of this victim. If you want to understand, let me be explicit. This hatred, this massive hatred and this war between Serbs and Croats 20 years back, you got to definitely go to the 1945 and to different historical accounts that were served and they were dished out by, by different groups from the West, especially, and also from Israel as well, and that unfortunately just pitted one country on one nation against the other. So I guess we want to avoid civil wars just like we could have avoided oh, i guess i could this is just my nostalgia for the past uh the war between the confederates and the southerners and the northerners there were also lots of issues here involved and we could debate about this for hours nick did we don't wanna, we don't yes. want to go into that again we definitely don't want and i'm telling you again if i may folks i, I guess i got nothing to hide i'm not ruling out if things really get nasty or whatever it may happen i'll go to the states and i'll do because after all this is my adopted country i i, I respect my people i respect lots of people and on a personal note despite my degrees despite my quite substantial you know knowledge of foreign languages in my my books and everything on a personal level, I feel much more in common 
with a uh, with a gentleman with a guy from the Ozark Mountains, what what you call the rednecks, <laughs> then with those East Coast and West Coast intellectuals. These oh, are my yeah. arch enemies. Let yeah. me recap: East Coast and West Coast intellectuals, or whatever, at Berkeley, at uh, Harvard. These are my arch enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's ironic, Doctor Sinek, because it seems as though that you did in fact assimilate. You assimilated to the exact America that the American power elite would prefer you did not. Because you have people who come uh, and they are assimilated into things like the American foreign policy consensus or, you know, uh, a fealty to Israel, uh, homosexualism, yeah. etc. Yeah. So... I didn't. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You're yeah, right. Well, I, I. I don't know if you ask me if I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I, I hate those those uh, nomens and what do you call it? Those those words. Uh, what does traditionalist mean? And what is uh, what is a uh, nationalist? I, they've become so much uh, abused and so much to the point that they are being discarded now. I frankly I. I just, I'm a free man, and I certainly, I, I'm proud of, yes, probably a, a topic that we got to, uh, that we got to uh, touch real briefly, this pathology, pathology of atonement, okay, that's something important, because this is also part of this, uh, this uh, American uh, messianism, which was actually dished out after the Second World War by the Frankfurt School and other opinion makers, first in the United States of America, even prior to the Second World War, and then uh, afterwards, especially like uh, this atonement what do i have to atone for what what is what does that mean what what, I, what do i have to be guilty about those guilt feelings they all unfortunately you know where they come where where they originate they originate in the bible i mean why do i have to be guilty guilty about what yeah it's I mean, original I, sin it's original sin it's a way to control it, you this is something i reject and this is where i'm in discord in discord and this is where i'm in disagreement with the catholic or with the christian teaching i don't have to feel look i certainly respect other people i will not somebody let's start if somebody comes if a black guy or roman there are quite a few of gypsies not a few well but there are sometimes they come well i'll give them a dime but it doesn't mean that i have to open up my house for them why i mean the european the european race the white race is the only race just look study a little bit anthropology I don't want to drivel too much, but I'll tell you, uh, the Europeans, the white people, are the only race on earth that, of course, we invented the gulag, we invented the Gauschwitz, whatever, all those bad things, but it is the only race, it is the only uh, gene pool, if you wish, that has been open to other other uh, uh, gene pools in terms of humanitarian aid. Who helped the, the, when the earthquake hit Haiti? Hey, Haiti, a couple of years back, who helped them first? The white right. Americans. Who helped the, the, the people in Somalia or for that in Chad or ever was the American soldiers and in Afghanistan, everywhere they're feeding them. Well, do not even assume if you study the cycle. Look, I lived in Northern Africa and Algeria for two years, Algeria. And it's just amazing when you really talk to those people. It never crosses the mind of their clerics, of their uh, Muslim clerics, or for that matter, rabbis, to help the Gentiles in, in food or in medicine or in, in, in some good gestures. It is the white people, it's the white nuns, it's the white priests who go to Africa and feed those people. I'm just putting it in a simplistic fashion, but I'm sure you understand the gist what I'm saying. So why do I have to feel guilty about? <laughs> life Life is a struggle, it's, it's a constant struggle. And I have a deep admiration, let's say, I don't want to sound like some a pathetic, idiotic fellow, but I have a deep admiration for early pioneers to the United States of America, 
back in the, the, in the, in the early 19th century. Those were the true pr Prometheans. I identify with them far more than with those, uh, uh, whatever you call them, lesbians and homosexuals in, uh, in the United States on the West Coast. You know? <laughs> so I guess... <laughs> yes. So basically, I keep telling in my speeches and lectures, guys, and you're welcome to attend our lectures uh, and our speeches in, in Tennessee end of this June and of this and uh, of the next month. I'll, I'll talk about this false, uh, this self-denial. Okay, this is a beautiful expression in the English language because it sounds much better, much more powerful than the German or the French language. Uh, and it's used not as often in French and in German as in English. Self-denial. We are constantly being, you know, I mean, I have to atone for the sins of what? For Auschwitz, all this topography of death, either surreal or unreal or whatever. Why do I have to do that? Look, I'm a free man. And I just want to, I want, I need, what I need is respect. And I'll show you the, an equal amount of respect. But I don't want to... Uh, bend over or bend down, whichever way you want to put it, and just uh, uh, mimic uh, something which is against my nature. And this is what I actually object in, which is, this is my strongest, uh, uh, what do you call it, criticism, or what is called the best word, uh, my, my criticism of Trump's, administ Trump's administration. Why bent over? Why, look, you're proud of what you got to first protect your country. You don't have to send the Marines into Afghanistan or for that matter to Somalia or to the Middle East. You know, you got to protect the border first, you know. <laughs> and I'd be happy to join you guys. Do you think this is a cultural problem? Do you think this is a cultural problem that is taught maybe through Christianity, maybe through just uh, something after the Second World War from the Frankfurt School? Or do you think it's biological more to your friend Kevin McDonald's theories about altruism and things like that yes that's uh, you got to take three factors there's definitely it's a biological factor itself even in ancient rome despite its repression i've been studying now ancient rome is this i did gave a speech on salust and juvenile uh, just a couple of weeks ago in in geneva so basically we can say that also the 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 Romans, the old Romans didn't were sometimes quite quite savage, especially when when they came to Scotland or where they came to when they fought against the Persians and so on. But by and large, again, by and large, in comparison to other races, to Persians, to the Jews, to 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 other barbarians, if you wish, non-Europeans. I mean, here in, in the, the Middle East, uh, again, they were far more open and they were far more forthcoming. In fact. They, they gave even a citizenship later on. It's, you know, the whole story, what happened, of course, later on in the third century, it turned into disaster when Caracalla, the emperor, declared citizenship for all residents of the Roman Empire. He shouldn't have done it. But by and large, uh, the, the white Romans, the white Romans, they were very generous, gen generally speaking. So were the Greeks. Of course, there were some limitations, but you don't see that in any other culture, be it in the Chinese. Um, I, I, I admire the Chinese today. You know why? Because they have no calms. They have no, uh, what do you call it, consciousness. Uh, they have no, what's the right word? They have no problems with their awareness. They are very racially aware. You notice that. Come on, folks. You notice that on the West Coast, you would never see a Japanese lady or Chinese lady date a black guy or Hispanic guy, you know, in the first place, you know. So they are implicitly they are aware of their roots. With all due respect, I respect them and vice versa. Do, do you know Do you know Lee Kuan Yew from uh, Singapore? 
I heard the name. Please do refresh my memory. So I'm Sing- sorry, Singapore, I... Singapore after 1964 or five was part of Malaysia, uh, uh, and it was yes. it was occupied by the Japanese before that, and then the British were controlling it. And it was a very poor oh. place. It was basically just a place for the British to stop their ships before they moved to China to sell them opium. Yes. Basically, yes, it was just a, a little backwater. After he took over, after they they split from Malaysia. He basically took that country from one of the poorest parts in the world to today. It actually per capita, they make more money than Americans do. So it is yes. an incredibly um, demonstrably proven economic success story. And his leadership is in almost all people's opinion, a huge part of that. And his uh, pragmatic point of view of do what works was one of the reasons why they were so successful. And one of, uh, one of the interviews he gave in before he died a few years ago, it was to an American journalist. He was a LA Times uh, journalist. And he basically, in, in very unsubtle terms, told the Los Angeles journalist, America is going to be in trouble. Uh, China is going to basically take over because your immigration policies are going to destroy your dynamism. The, yes. the people in the Obama cabinet uh, or the Bush administration uh, who are of Hispanic descent are exceptional people. These are not the norm. And the Hispanic culture is not the American culture. And you are basically becoming Hispanic with your immigration policies. And so he just basically laid it out right right there in front of him. It's like, look, you, you guys are gonna are gonna have problems. And he also he he basically admits that the Jews are, are extremely intelligent and he talks about basically just admits that race is real. And yes, the thanks. Chinese are like this. I've met people from Singapore. I've met people from um, from China. Uh, in Japan, they they don't have any foreigners, but like they're implicitly racist because of that yes. very reason. They they yeah. don't. They, just, of course, like we're Japanese. We're not going to have you people here. And they understand this. And it's like I, I, we waste so much time in the West talking about why. Uh, Jarmel is going to be the next president that we cannot compete with the people in Asia who basically just focus on engineering and math all day. There's no way we're yes. going to compete with this. This is a big problem. Uh, and I, I, I don't know what we're going to do because it's basically it's destroying the I don't really care about the economy as much as I used to. But it matters because when when our aircraft carriers are, are being paid for with with debt from China. All right, we're we're not going to be able to fight a war. We're not going to be able to. We can't even protect our border. I mean, it's so stupid. And th- this, the United States and and Europe is in some ways better, but it's it's really been protected by the United States. And so it's it's like, what is going to happen? I mean, let's just be really, really brutally honest here. We are wasting so much time and energy on the bullshit of race that is so obvious to most people around the world that we are not going to be able to do anything until we figure this out. So I, I just, uh, it disgusts me at times. Because I, I, I'm yes. not doing this because I want to talk about race. I, w- I want to basically get back to things that I care about. You know, th- this is what frustrates me. We can't have families anymore. We can't have normal working class lives anymore because we're, we're so consumed with this political garbage. It, it's mm. going to destroy us. It, it's just, it's, it's just horrible. Absolutely. Yes, I, I, I fully follow. Look, if I can, on a personal level again, on a personal note, I'm sorry, I'm losing my English a little bit. Uh, um, 
One of the reasons also left the United States of America, of course, was a war here. And I, of course, later on, I got disappointed. But the fact of the matter is that Croatia, for the time being, but only for the time being, is the white white enclave here in Europe, probably the purest white enclave in Europe. It hasn't been a beacon of attraction or whatever, a cake walk, as we say, in as Germany. Germany is a rich, still a pretty rich motor of the entire European economy. But Croatia, well, it's it's not poor, but it, but it's certainly not as dynamic economically. But at least there is a privilege you know, for the time being, I repeat, for the time being, you don't have to worry about getting yourself a gun or getting two locks on your door and, and, and go to sleep. It's still very safe and it's a nice place. You see nice white women and uh, men walking around and chatting late at night. You see people jogging. I could not do it down in Fullerton, Anaheim, where I left, you know, 30 years ago. And now I guess it's far, far worse. Again, you mentioned Singapore. I guess we gotta, we just gotta state the obvious thing. I hate this word apartheid. I hate the word segregation. But the fact of the matter is, people need fences. When you have fences, then you respect your neighbor. Well, we agree. We agree. It's just going to be difficult to get that when yes, we have very the, difficult. the very powers difficult. that don't want it. And that that's again, it's a strategy question. What do we do? I I think you're right. There are positive developments. I don't want to just be negative. The, the fact that we're talking well, about Adam, this and normal people are talking about it let, is a good thing. Go ahead, Nick. Let me jump in here, Adam. I, I would say it's to back to Dr. Sunak's book, it's not simply just the powers that is the issue, but it's the extent to which uh, American people and unfortunately now many European people have internalized this type of political theology. Yes. How do we yes. get how do we dispense of this? How do we get rid of this? Huh. How do we move well, past it? I the way the way I see, I'm pretty much of a loner. I know lots of people here. I know, I know lots of people in Europe. I'm pretty well, well known, not just in nationalist circles, but also in anti antifa knows me also very well. Of course, I always keep you know. I always abide by the law. There is no question. I know my limitations, but you know. I do have, I mean, look, I don't want to sound pessimistic. Let's, guys, end up this on, on an optimistic note. You know, what I admire among Europeans, when you read Homer, for instance, when you read the classics, you notice this Promethean spirit, which is really something unique, unique for all of us of European ancestry and European extraction. So regardless of the number, we may be a minority shortly. In 20 years down the road, we'll be probably 35, 40% of, of European Americans. But as long as there is a 1 million or 2 million people who are cultural and racially aware and who can be a good role model, not just for their pockets and for their wealth and for their affluence, but who can, who can help a little bit. And I, I guess it can be done. I myself, I'll tell you, folks, you know me very little, but I'll tell you quite openly, I am willing even to go overseas to relocate back with my wife, and I would, I would love to teach at some college. Now it's out of the game, out of the game, out of the, it's not longer possible because we know who runs the show at colleges in America. It can be done. We don't need lots of people. Look at the big revolutions. Look at even the big Bolshevik revolution. It wasn't started by the Russian people. It started by well-organized 800, 700 people. You know, most of them, you know, quite a few of them, over 200 came from the United States of America. They were of Jewish ancestry, but right. there were quite a few Estonians, Georgians, and so on. But they were well organized. So what we need is, what I, I'll tell you one thing, what I don't like and what, what really makes me sad 
is that in our rank and file of very intelli- very intelligent folks, you know, even folks that I will be meeting shortly in Tennessee, we got top-notch in- academics, we have top-notch intellectuals, but there is a great deal of what I call it, uh, is it vanity or is it the word egocentrism? You know, I know quite a few folks who know them also. I respect them very much, but whose ego is sometimes bigger than the Cologne Cathedral, you know, or bigger than the cathedral in Rome, you know. So I guess we just got to tone down a little bit our egos and put our, our, our efforts together, you know. It can be done. We just need somebody who can be a good role model, mm-hmm. not necessarily a leader, but I said an intellectual leader, a political leader, and I... Look, I'm amateur service guys. If you ever want to start something, I'll fly over. I'm serious about well, that. Do you want to talk Can about I, the American Freedom Party? Yes, well, I can say a few words. This is a good party. There's no, We have some very powerful intellectuals, including my friend Kevin McDonald, William Johnson. These are all good people. I'll tell you quite frankly, probably haven't done, we haven't done enough of good job. But now we have Rick Tyler, who is running for congressman. He's a great guy, extremely articulate, high, you know, very very vocal. He speaks very good English. He is rich, and I mean, such a, such a treasure trove of, 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 of the English language. He And I like the guy. And we have some very good people, and hopefully we shall spread out a little bit. Probably we haven't done enough. And guys, again and again, I'd like to invite your listeners to come and join us. End of June, there will be my friends from Germany, from Switzerland, also from Serbia. There will come some. I will serve as an interpreter if needed. I will entertain the crowd. And, of course, we need people from all walks of life. You know, We want to show that we are not necessarily catering to, to a specific layer of the American people. And I'd be happy, guys, to see you there as well. And I, of course, I'd be very happy to keep in touch with you guys and put in a word for my books, for my whatever. <laughs> I'd be happy to uh, to come over and, and uh, possibly hold a couple of lectures if you can organize something of course. over of course. at your place. Do you want to hear a funny story real quick? Sure. Oh, sure all right. So I was at the election booth over 10 years ago, and I was disgusted with the Democrats, with the Republicans, and I was just an independent. So I, I actually saw the name American Freedom Party on the ballot. And I'm like, oh, that sounds good. I'm going to, I'm going to make it. So I asked the lady who was at the table. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not really Republican or Democrat. I think I'll, I'll identify with these guys. And she's like, are you sure? That is a very extreme right wing party. I don't know if you should do that. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I'm like, is, I told I, I, this story to other people, and they're like, you know, they're not supposed to tell you that. Like, that's that's not up to them. Like, they can't give their opinion. And I'm like, yeah, well, uh, it's the first time I voted, I think, or the second time. And so I, I, I listened to her. But there, there's actually a reputation about your party. So I, I just wanted to tell you from personal experience what well, happened. Well, thank you very much. Listen, guys, probably I'm the best person in town in terms of this uh, numerology, in terms of what you call name-calling. Why? Because, look, back in communist Yugoslavia, all nationals, national mind Croats, be it left or right or even revisionist, or, uh, revisionist in, in ideological sense, were called fascists. This was like a generic term. If you wanted to, to cut down somebody, if you wanted to, sh- to, to, to silence somebody forever, just call him a fascist or call him a racist or anti-Semite for that matter. So those words, thank God, they've become so dispersed and so watered down, they basically mean zilch. They mean nothing nowadays. So when somebody say he's an extremist, what does that mean, extremist? I am a nice guy. I haven't hurt anybody. I'm quite contrary. I've been a little bit too naive and I'm giving way too much to people who don't like me anyway. 
But I'm very thankful, guys, for, for your show. And listen, I don't want to cut it short. I mean, I just I got quite a few variants. Believe it or not, I got, I'm got. i traveling next week. I'm sorry, this Saturday I'm going to be at this big, big, uh, it's a Catholic mass. I'll tell you something very important. Uh, Bleiburg. Bleiburg is a small town on the Slovenian-Austrian border, in, in Austria, right near Klagenfurt. And there is this big, big, big gathering, meeting, rally, or rather it's a Catholic uh, Catholic uh, commemoration for the victims of communism, of Yugoslav communism. Croatia, you know, during the Second War, either fortunately or unfortunately, was the last ally of National Socialist Germany, very Catholic nonetheless. So this is the big meeting over there. Over 10,000 people usually every year attend this meeting. However, however, if you read the press, just type Bleiburg, you already noticed that in the Israeli Times, in the Haaretz, in the Jerusalem Post, in some, not, not necessarily left-wing, but in the midstream, mainstream media, you will hear the title, The Biggest Right-Wing Gathering in Europe. Now, this is not a gathering because the Christian bishops will be there. It's very, very official in a sense. So this, again, gives you an idea how we got to be extremely careful about the fake news, or rather what we call it, the free news, and how they manipulate with those nomens and with those lexical um, uh, 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 what we call escapades and just making it's a dumping down escapade and makes people you know uh, uh, lose their lose their compass what do you call it they just look any any sense of orientation so I, I will be going there most likely with some of my colleagues with some high level colleagues and you know after that I might be meeting some folks from the FPO and some identitarians and I certainly would be happy if you guys have some uh, broad audience, you can give them my email and I'd be happy if I could be of some help, folks.